and the docs, well, they'd kind of brush over it. No, eat less. You know, I've, I've heard all kinds of bad advice. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome to the Seasoned RD podcast where we are in our second medical series and out of the gate, I'm going to warn that there's some language here that really revved up my nervous system. And because this is a podcast for professionals, we don't censor what I consider to be stigmatizing words or weights, calories, diet names. So if it's hard for you to hear words like obesity, bariatrics, overweight, weight management, body mass index, and specific diets like clean eating or paleo, I invite you to skip this episode. And just in case this is your first time tuning into a medical series here, I don't want to forget to reintroduce you to Dr. Voss. She's our medical doctor co-host for the medical series. And to learn more about her, check out her episode titled, Eating Disorders Should Always Be on Your Differential, which is a message that actually all of our docs have shared with us along the way. So we're here today with Dr. Jeffrey Hooper, and I invited him to be a guest on this podcast because he runs a program where people come to, yes, lose weight. He saw the problems when medical professionals use weight as the focus, and he was seeking more training on eating disorders for himself and for his staff. His big takeaway is the responsibility that medical professionals have to look past the weight. His quote was, I feel I have the responsibility beyond what surgeons might see. He knows we're not helping people by requiring weight loss as a focus. Dr. Hooper shares for fellow medical providers to be careful not to praise weight loss at any cost. I was grateful for Dr. Voss's comment about meeting our patients where they are. And this is where my nervous system settled in because I realized there are more similarities in this in the humanity of taking care of our patients and than differences, with the main differences being what I consider stigmatizing language. And the main similarity for me is being able to step away from the ledge where weight loss is seen as the solution and so many other things are missed. Finally, in this podcast, we bring medical nutrition and therapy professionals who share their passions to pique your interest in available modalities for the field of eating disorders. This show is intended to inform and educate. It is not a substitute for professional training and supervision required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, nor is it a substitute for medical, nutritional, or psychological advice from a professional or specialist. I have a couple of spots left in my small group supervision that begins July 2022. So if you are interested, there's information in the show notes or go to bethharrell.com slash professional. Well, welcome, Dr. Jeff Hooper. Thank you. 
We are glad that you joined us on the Seasoned RD podcast. Our listeners are really going to have a treat in getting to know you. And you and I got to meet as you became interested in bariatrics and eating disorders together. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I uh, was trying to figure out how to get my certification in and or as a uh, eating disorder specialist. And you were you helped a lot, whether you realize it or not, you helped me a lot. We had, um, we were had an uphill battle. Yeah, it was a little bit difficult, but not too bad. Just took a little bit of time to find a good mentor and we're doing really well. I think we're about a year and a half into uh, mentor meetings or what have you. That's great. We can't wait to hear more about that, but just to kick things off kind of easy mountains or beach. Oh, I'm a mountains guy. Mountains. Okay. Is there a reason behind that? Well, I'm a climber. I, I, I have done uh, a lot of alpine climbing in Washington, where I live. We have both mountains and beach. I live, you know, literally a hundred, well, one mile from uh, the, the Puget Sound and uh, the beach. But um, I love that too. But uh, if I have to choose, I'm, I'm interested in climbing up in the mountains. It's, it's more, I guess, isolated. I, maybe it's because I'm more of an introvert. I don't know. <laughs> Well, if you had to choose, would you do breakfast or dinner? Oh, I guess I'm dinner. I like I like just a standard protein and vegetable kind of thing. I'm not so much a. Uh, I mean, I'll eat breakfast, but uh, it's not a special meal to me. Sometimes my breakfast is pretty important. Okay, <laughs> that's part of your breakfast. Yeah, it's part of my breakfast. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's sometimes, sometimes for me, breakfast, I love it because it's just, it starts my day off well, but dinner, sometimes breakfast is just a means to an end, like just get through it to get through the day. And the dinner can be a little more special. Yeah, it's more of a social thing, I suppose. So audiobook or paper book? Well, the only time I really do audiobooks is when I'm working out or something like that. And they're really valuable at that time. But short of that, it's always going to be paper book. Okay. Do you get a little bit of each then? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of um, when I'm trying to read or if I'm doing something for a class, I don't like to read off of uh, even off of the computer. It's interesting because I'm right now I'm doing my master's degree to supplement Wow. Other things about what I'm uh, trying to learn, I'm getting an a exercise physiology degree. Okay. And so that has introduced me to a lot of younger people, <laughs> a lot of people that are you know, college age. Yeah. And they all read everything online and all that sort of stuff. Whereas I like, I want it on paper. I want to <laughs> sift through it that way. So it's kind of an old school thing. Makes me feel old. Um, but, uh, all right. Well, you are a medical doctor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we are going there. We are going towards the the sort of taboo topic of obesity medicine or lifestyle medicine and eating disorders. And so how did you get interested in, well, actually, before I do that, can you share with us a moment, either a board exam or something that was kind of stressful or maybe funny, a funny moment in accomplishing that board exam. We have listeners who are newer in the field and some who are just thinking about getting into it, but also right now they're, they're studying for their board exams. 
Oh, yes. Well, I've taken a lot of them over the years just because that's what, you know, when you get into medicine, it's just a, a series of boards and, uh, and, and then certifications and recertifications. And I am kind of a glutton for punishment because you keep trying to get more certifications as you try and maybe expand or specialize a little bit in your field. At some point, you just get to the place where you're, you know, it's just another test. I am lucky that I never really got a lot of anxiety around that, but some folks definitely do. And I would only say they write those tests for you to pass. <laughs> so don't worry, you know, prepare well and, you know, just answer the best of your knowledge. And I know I've been, I've taken some board exams that I just take it and I feel like I'm just bombed the thing. It's mm. like, I knew nothing that was on this test. And, you know, even when that happens, you, t- you come away doing just fine, typically. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a matter of some of those questions are like experimental and that sort of thing. And nobody knew what the heck they were asking. Not just you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just encourage you and say, don't worry, just address each question and don't feel beat up by the 300th question or whatever it is. Oh my gosh, I know. I don't know how you can't, but um, your best bet is to just address each one and do the best you can. And you acknowledge that you are lucky that you don't have that anxiety. Definitely. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I just, maybe it's because of doing it a lot, but sometimes folks have just always had a lot of anxiety around tests. I mean, I've got three kids and they do a lot of testing in school too. And I know that my daughter was talking about, I just hate taking the test and Mm -hmm. I can understand that she hates it. But I told her, well, what you want to do is take, take them to the point where you're less anxiety provoked by them because Exposure you're going to see a lot of those types Exposure of therapy. Exposure therapy. Dr. Hooper has it. He's taking them all. He's gotten your exposures. Yeah. Well, wow, so, she's interested in STEM and when you're going into STEM, you're going to mm-hmm. get tested. Well, I just want to know how you got into the field of medicine and then how you became interested in eating disorders and the overlap between obesity medicine, bariatrics, and lifestyle medicine? Sure. Well, for me, when I uh, originally got into medicine, I started out, I I got my nursing degree. So I was a nurse maybe five minutes before I got it. Well, I was actually applying to med school as I was finishing that. But the intention was to work with, well, just people, primary care, that kind of thing. I didn't have a interest in saving the world necessarily uh, or, or coming up with the next breakthrough. And so I went to med school with that in mind, but my training was in internal medicine, which is what I primarily do and emergency medicine, because at that time that was exciting, you know, back, you know, 20 years ago, ER was a big deal. <laughs> it was a show that maybe some of you guys don't know because you're so much younger than me. But uh, the point is, I trained in emergency medicine and didn't do it very long because, well, it just didn't have the excitement for me after uh, I started practicing it. So I went and completed that dual residency and just followed through with the internal medicine part, did primary you mean care. The ER isn't like the show, TV show? Who would have known? <laughs> Yeah, no, I yeah, I didn't get a, you know, there isn't sex in every uh, closet no or office something. Like that. <laughs> All the office trysts. No, it's nothing like that. But 
it's just more managed and that sort of thing and more cookbook. So managing patients, which is what I like to do, wasn't something I was able to do there the way I wanted to. And a lot of the way I had to manage them, I didn't like it. I, I, a good example of that, just a quick aside, was the mental health patients, patients I worried about that would come in that would have you know, need for maybe being admitted or something like that. They wouldn't have facility for that. They wouldn't be able to manage it. So they just want me to send them back out, you know, and, and I was like, yeah, I don't really feel comfortable with this. I don't like where this is going. And, is that what uh, you mean by a lot more cookbook? Like just kind of following? Well, following a protocol. This, okay. If this, then that, for example, they'll often say, oh, there's a chest pain in, in, in slot three, you know, and, and you treat it like a chest pain. You do these blood tests, you do this test, you call the, the specialist at this point, you send them up to cath at, at that point, but there's not a lot of thinking involved. So to me, it's something that's, you know, it's reasonably suited for somebody who wants that, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And clearly there's excitement. There. There's always craziness in the ER. You also can't like follow them through. And you can't, well, other than the ones that keep coming back. (laughs) But (laughs) even then you're not, you're just, it's almost like you're repeating the same thing over and over. You're in this stuck groundhog day, right? Instead of pushing, moving them forward. Whereas what you do now sounds very different. Well, exactly. So I, I decided I wanted to go into primary care so I could follow people and manage them with their medical issues, whatever they may be, usually chronic things over the long haul. That was more appealing to me. And as I started doing that, that's when I kind of recognized some of the shortcomings in that field. And the two big ones were pain management, which I didn't go into, <laughs> and obesity, which I decided to, to take on in a more you know specialized way. So those two things I felt were major primary care issues that were not being addressed well and that needed, I don't know, uh, more work that were kind of areas in their infancy of uh, where they would be going. And so I decided to go with the obesity treatment because so many of our patients had issues with that. And the docs, well, they'd kind of brush over it. No, eat less, you know. <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard all kinds of bad advice given. Um, what, from, uh, what made you want to get certified through IADEP in the eating disorder world? Well, that's the next phase. After I started learning more about obesity treatment and obesity management, I realized how connected that was to disordered eating. Mostly binge eating, but not entirely. Clearly, we had a number of patients who had a history, maybe bulimia, sometimes even anorexia, but it wasn't really brought up much at conferences or anything like that. I only saw it through my own patients. And then there was a little touching on it here and there that I would see in the bigger field. And it's starting to come around a little bit more because clearly it's there. You know, a good percentage of patients who struggle with weight have, you know, developed disordered, well, more than disordered eating, many of them have disordered eating, eating disorders, uh, diagnosable eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So uh, to be able to manage those, I feel is necessary. To be able to recognize those in particular is necessary for somebody who does the work that, that I do. Yeah. Again, I work with surgeons too. Surgeons aren't always going to look for that. So I feel like I have responsibility to kind of 
keep an eye out for that sort of thing and manage it when they come in regardless. Because you had talked about early in your career that you what what was missing was the mental health piece. And so yeah. this kind of blends all of that. And, you know, in the world of eating disorders, the, a lot of obesity medicine is considered sort of taboo. And yeah. so that's why when you reached out to become certified or to to look into that, including people in your office. So what's your office like? Is it have therapists? Are there dietitians? Yeah, originally, so I kind of put together the program, this weight loss program, and it has people like me, other doctors who are what we call bariatricians, lifestyle medicine doctors. And then there are dietitians. You know, we've got a handful of dietitians that work with us that work kind of hand in hand with our patients. There are some therapists as well, psychologists who work on the well, if they did get recognized as having an eating disorder, we would work with the psychologist, of course. Not all patients will see them because it's not always a primary issue for them, but many will see them. And we'd probably send more to the psychologist if the bandwidth was there. But we primarily send those that we recognize this is the either the major or a major issue that we need to work on to have success with this patient. Do you ever get sent patients to you just because of where their BMI is, but everything else looks okay? Maybe they don't have, they don't have any medical complications because of their weight. They are just considered overweight or obese. Well, yeah, that does happen. There are, are patients that come to us who typically they want to lose weight. That's why they're there. And they may or may not have medical problems associated with it. One thing that we try and keep in mind with regard to sequelae from obesity is that there are the metabolic sequelae that some people sadly get in spades. They get the diabetes and the, and the cardiovascular side effects. They get the uh, hypertension, all these types of standard metabolic sort of sequelae. And then there's the more physical sequelae that tend to develop over time, you know, bad back, bad knees, you know, uh, you know, those things that just having excess weight that you're carrying around will often eventually lead to. And some people, again, are more prone to those because I don't, their genetic makeup just makes their, their body structure better at carrying a large body uh, than others, depending on probably a lot of factors. But there are definitely people that come in that don't have any medical sequelae or physical sequelae when they first see us. And, and, what and do you... our goal is not to tell them you need to lose weight. We're not a BMI directed group. We're not saying BMI says 20 to 25 is normal. So that's where you should be. Uh, I don't know. Were you going to go there? <laughs> okay. I was yes, wondering. I was. I'm sorry. I jumped onto that. No, but perfect. yeah, we're very much trying to direct toward health. I want you eating healthy, but I don't care if you're weight's normal. I want you eating healthy. That's something that I see as my role. Is I, I'm a lifestyle doctor trying to get people that don't eat well to eat better. And by that, we're trying to get you to just have a balanced diet. Don't live on Cheetos or something like that. And we'll probably uh, be doing you a favor. Now, does that spare you from developing diabetes or developing hypertension? We'd like to think so. And it certainly will help prevent those conditions getting worse if they are there. But, you know, ultimately that's our, our role is to try and 
encourage those lifestyle areas that are often ignored by today's society. Exercise, you know, doing that. Is that what you mean by a lifestyle doctor is you're focusing more on the, on the health behaviors rather than the weight itself? Very much. We're looking at diet, exercise, and sleep. Those are the three big legs to the stool that would be a lifestyle sort of approach to any sort of chronic condition. And if you're not managing those things well, well, you aren't doing what would usually be the first recommendation for most medical conditions. Most chronic medical conditions say, first step, fix your diet. And then we breeze over that and start throwing medicines (laughs) at people. And so if we can work more diligently and more thoroughly on the lifestyle side of things, a lot of times we can avoid going to those more aggressive sorts of treatments like medicines and surgery. It seems like oftentimes it's very difficult as much as everyone is kind of trying right now, but difficult to shift away from BMI. So could you explain why you don't think it's a great tool to use? Well, you know, I see patients all day and I see a lot of them that are, you know, just in larger bodies and that are not going to be at a good weight when you get them down into a pre-prescribed sort of uh, BMI. Now, certainly there are benefits to weight loss when there's excessive weight there, and especially if that's what they want to do. But it is fairly, it's a negative sort of thing when they get preoccupied with numbers. Or I don't like the way that BMI is listed as normal, overweight, which overweight range is usually the range I prefer because it does kind of go along with fewer medical sequelae and, you know, it's more sustainable for many folks. And these days we have shifted past that point where the BMI of 20 to 25 is, is very useful for most of the body structures that I see. Most people have grown out of it. I don't know why, but our skeletons have gotten bigger. Our frames are bigger than they were in the 50s and 60s when these numbers first started uh, being uh, thrown around. So I don't feel that the healthiest weight is what we call normal anyway. I don't either. Um, And I think J-curve that is, and I think BMI was shifted downward at that time. Like, I don't know that our skeletons. For for certain ethnicities, yeah. So that's what normal. uh, Yeah, I'm saying that in quotes. Yeah. Exactly. And... I'll never forget this quote that I heard made by a cardiologist at one of the obesity conferences I heard to. He said, said, despite efforts, still true that you can never be too rich or too skinny. And I couldn't believe that. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, I can't believe that either. I I think you can be too rich and I think you can definitely be too skinny. So I, I just felt like at that point he's lost me. And just didn't really have a lot to, to say, but he had his perspective on how the weight was causing issues yeah. from a cardiovascular standpoint. This guy's a well-renowned, you know, he was a national speaker. Doesn't matter to me. Like when you said there, there's going to be people who are not going to be at a good weight, even if they get to what the prescribed is. Yeah. What I'm interpreting that as is their body is genetically supposed to carry more weight. If they're yeah, too low, exactly. even though they may be high on the BMI, they're not going to do well medically. Exactly. Uh, I mean, what we try and drive our uh, 
I, what I try and get instilled in patients' minds as far as a goal weight is I don't give them a number. I try and optimize the lifestyle and let them know your weight will go down until it's plateauing at a, and finds a nice little set point that it likes to hang out at. And that set point may be just right for you, but let's, let's reassess when we get to those. So ultimately we just kind of let it happen, (laughs) try and optimize their, their diet exercise and see where that takes us. Talking about it with you, you make it seem so easy. Like, duh, why? I mean, why would you use the BMI because X, Y, and Z. And so if there's all this literature out there supporting that, why do you think a lot of physicians still use the BMI? It's easy. I don't think of it as a bad number. The BMI is a, it's an easy thing. We always look for tools that are reproducible, easy to use, that sort of thing. And I think BMI is a good one. I just think we're not using it right. We're making it into something that it isn't. It's not a reflection of health. That, that's the biggest misinterpretation. It is a representation of weight for height. <laughs> mm-hmm. Degree of roundness is what I often tell my patients is what that is reflecting. And so where you should be is a, is a really good question, but I do a, I feel a pretty good job of telling them that I don't think that that's a, an appropriate thing for me to answer for them. It's also, Abby, always... because you can bill for it, at least in the pediatric. If you calculate a BMI and specify what it is, insurance will pay you more for that. Well, that's true. Insurances Ugh. have to have fairly set point sort of things that they can bill for. And that might be one of those as well. But I, I don't think it is going to go away because of its simplicity and what it can be used for. But I think we can change the idea of what it's good at predicting. And it, we'll only be able to change that if we can come up with other tools that are also simple right. that do a better job. And um, it's only one thing. It's really, truly only one thing. What if you have a genetic bradycardia? Like you're not athletic, you're not not eating enough, those kinds of things. But then medical providers say, well, you have bradycardia, we need to treat this. And you, you're not symptomatic. And so I'm using that as an example. BMI is just one piece of that puzzle. Like if, if your BMI is in an area that's deemed to be not acceptable, by health standards, but you don't have any health consequences of it, then it's just a piece of information that may not be useful. Well, that's all true. But let me give you an example of a a young woman I saw yesterday. She's 20 years old and obese. I think she was around 300 pounds. Describes having been overweight all her life. She came in with her mother and she is probably has been from the time she was young stigmatized by the weight and all she wants to lose weight. That's high on her priority list. Of course, my approach is let's figure out, you know, is there some things that might be causing this? We're going to do some genetic testing and various other things before we go down any other path. But her goal is I want surgery. I want to lose weight. And that's kind of outside of our, you know, that's something societal, you know, we need to kind of change that whole mantra of where should we be and what are we trying to shoot for? And, and that's a harder thing to do. (laughs) Agreed. I mean, the reason that she may be in there because I've used the example of a, a little girl neighbor who came running outside and said, mom, my brother called me fat. And she's, she's 
a child and 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 what would be considered to be thin. She right. was eight years old. And so like fat can be the worst, worst thing that you can call someone. So this young lady who came in yesterday is stigmatized by a society. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that, like you were saying, that the culture is part of the problem. We can't change that overnight, but we certainly can say your body is, is if there's nothing metabolically going on, your body's okay where it is, but she really, really wants to. And so what is the, what's the percent of success for someone like that? Okay. So the percent of success for someone trying to lose weight, you mean? Mm-hmm. Well, of course it depends a lot on what they do and the numbers are hard to get in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at say a weight loss program that's non-surgical, they're going to give you the numbers for the six months. This mm-hmm. is how many of our patients lost weight. Well, big deal. Do they keep it off <laughs> right. for a year or do they keep it off for five years? Yeah. And those kind of numbers are harder to really get your hand on, put your finger on. But I've been following patients for a long time. And the ones that have the, you know, clearly there are some of our patients that will have success. And then since they had success, they'll go their way and do their thing. Sometimes they'll come float back into me because I don't have a defined period of time on my program. We're an insurance-based program. So it's not like a lot of weight loss programs that you'd go to where, gosh, they're expensive. There's a commercial program I'm aware of in this area, but they're probably any area you're, you're thinking of five grand or something like that to come in and do a bunch of meal replacement shakes and lose weight. And, and, and though they say it's for life, they, they really stop following the patient and they can, after they stop doing that acute phase of weight loss shakes and stuff like that. And, and they say, come back when you gain the weight again. <laughs> yeah. Come back when you gain the weight again, and we'll go through this all again. Mm-hmm. But if you continue to follow them and encourage that healthy eating, the diet or the exercise, all that sort of thing, that can be a sustainable plan. And it has been for a number of our patients that do that. But it's hard to keep doing that stuff. Life gets in the way in Mm -hmm. that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. So people will have struggles down the road. And we try Mm -hmm. and tell them that and say, look, when this is happening and you're having more trouble, come in. When COVID happens, who who predicts that? You know, who predicts now I'm going to be working from home for the next year or two and have my pantry right there and right nobody's there. watching. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know I'm I gonna, had a lot of weight gain around that. It, for sure. <laughs> yeah. As an eating disorder dietitian, I'm going to play devil's advocate about Cheetos. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. What if I love Cheetos? Oh, I was just going to say it's all right to love anything. And uh, there's no point restricting. Absolutely. But if you only eat Cheetos, you're not getting a nutritional diet. And actually, when you take something away, absolutely, you're just going to develop a a desire for that. Exactly. It's kind of like having a daughter who you tell them they can't date some guy. (laughs) You don't do that. (laughs) It's a good example. You you, want to basically let the foods that are really highly craved be a part of the diet, but try to keep it, you know, without try and be better about how it's brought in, you know, so you're not overdoing it and trying to recognize portions and, and that sort of thing are, are still important. At least that's the way we approach it. 
Yeah, I'm really curious about your program. Um, mm-hmm. So you said you said exercise, sleep, and diet. And so I've got my two dietitians here. So what what kind of techniques do you use, or what what do you do on the diet portion to help them along? Are you prescribing certain types of diets or fad diets, or how do you do it? Well, a lot of what our dietitians, they just had a retreat yesterday. So that's kind of ironic. There are six dietitians, I think we have in the medical side. And we also have a, another six or so that we're mostly just with our surgical patients. But these six call them medical dietitians, non-surgical dietitians, they'll see a patient and just kind of find out what are they doing now? Because the patient's goals tend to be, I want to lose weight, or maybe they were sent by somebody specifically like my GI doctors will send folks who have problems with gastroparesis to us. I'll have patients who come from my cardiologists who need management of their diet to kind of better manage their heart failure. So we play those roles as well. Again, that's the lifestyle side of it. But when weight is the primary concern, and it is much of the time, we're just trying to figure out what they're doing now, because whatever they're doing now tends to not be you know, where we want to go because it's not working, but some of them have a great diet. I mean, they've been fighting this or working with this maybe all their life. So there are times when patients will come in and they're eating well, they're portioning things and diet's not the problem. That's what we're trying to ascertain. It's just like, how are you eating? We look at, you know, what types of foods they're, they're getting as far as balancing, you know, macros and that sort of stuff. We look at portions, are they eating excessively, that sort of stuff not completely obsessing about calories, but at least paying attention to it. So we have an idea where it is. And we look at how they spread out their meals over the course of the day. Are they eating once a day? Because that one meal a day program is usually not what we want them to do. I have patients that have done that and had success. And I have worked with fasting programs in the past where people did versions of intermittent fasting that worked for them. Mostly I don't feel that that's a great diet, but you know, on the whole, we just kind of want to see where their head is at mm-hmm. and then try and steer them to a way that they're not causing problems for themselves. Like say they want to do keto because everybody in their family is doing keto or something Ugh. like that. Yeah. What we're trying to do is say, all right, well, let's see how you can do. If you don't just eat unhealthy fats, let's try and get a healthier fat sort of option going on there and, and see how you do with this, because the chances are you're going to, you're going to stop it at some point. And then we're going to have to segue to a less keto specialized diet. Sounds like you do a lot of motivational interviewing and a lot of meeting the patient where they're at. A hundred percent. Because I imagine they've had a lot of people prescribe to them, right? You need to eat this way. You need to do that. And so And they have all of this stuff in their head, especially as adults built up over the years on what's right and what's wrong. And so for you to just come in and say something that's completely different than that, or do another prescription, they're probably already thinking I'm going to fail because I failed all the time. So I understand this perspective of, okay, if you think a keto diet's right, we'll support you. And when it's not, then we'll move on to the next way. A lot of but, times people have to learn on their own. Yeah. To be actually be able to change because they'll just leave if you, if right. they're not hearing what they want right. from you in many cases. So we are trying to give them, you know, this is why we usually don't recommend that diet, you know, various things. So we're trying to stay away from fads like keto or, or 
you know, uh, whatever else is floating around intermittent fasting. But at the same time, all my dietitians have their own sorts of things that they, uh, push. There's one of them who's really the clean eating woman. <laughs> she, she likes all about this clean eating and others are, uh, maybe a little less focused on that sort of aspect of things. But on the whole, I try and get them to recognize the program that we're trying to push is just finding out where the patient is and how do we get them to a healthier place. So listen to the patient and see if if, if we can't just do the best to improve a diet and sustainability is the key. We want some sort of a diet that they can sustain and be on long-term. It's refreshing to hear you say those things. And back when you mentioned about the plateau, and I I see a lot of patients who come in and they're like, man, I'm at this plateau. They think it's a bad thing. Whereas you're saying like, well, the plateau is maybe a good thing. Like this is where your body is really happy and healthy and you're fueling yourself in the right way, so on and so forth. But again, like in so many cases, their PCP might be telling them, well, this plateau you're at is, is in an overweight category. You have to get down to quote unquote normal. That's the, the tricky part. But again, just hearing you speak to this is very refreshing. Yeah, I don't think I represent by and large, <laughs> most others, at least from the medical community, in the sense that, like, say somebody drops from a BMI of, of 45 to 42, they've dropped some weight, they're still over a BMI of 40. The, the PCP may be saying, yeah, we still have to lose X amount of weight. And whereas that's just advice, it becomes real when they need to get their knee surgery. And they can't get their knee surgery till that BMI is under 40, or I have got a, a, a local orthopedist, good guy, who pushes for 38. I don't know why he uses 38 mm. as a number, but Medicare says 40, so usually that's what I can, can get. But they, they are driven to drop weight for that, or I have a number of patients who are on transplant lists, and before they can get their transplant, their kidney transplant, their liver transplant, I work with heart transplants, they have to get their BMI down. And, you know, they've got limited numbers of resources. They look at numbers and the, and the patients that are, you know, obese don't do as well. Maybe, maybe that's what they're going by, but. That's uh, what I'm wondering. Yeah. Like what's the rationale behind that? Because then they'll yeah. send someone over to get bariatric surgery Yeah, and it's still a surgery. It's so, you know, what are the complications of a transplant uh, in someone or in emergencies? people of all sizes are certainly getting life-saving surgeries. So I don't, I don't understand the rationale behind having people lose. And I mean, but again, I'm not a surgeon, I'm not in that world, but. Well, the surgeries are more complicated just by the size of the patient in many cases, but the downstream effects and that sort of stuff, they tend to do better. And we have a lot of success in those patients because they've got that clear carrot you know, hanging out there, mm -hmm. get off of dialysis, get into my, uh, get my, uh, uh transplant done mm -hmm. and they can often do pretty well, but it can be tough. Mm -hmm. I yeah, mean, a I, you know, good example of a patient that I have like that Samoan, we have a lot of Samoans in, in this part of the country and they're big people. Mm -hmm. I mean, body frame is just in genetic. general, it's very, yeah. very genetically big. And so many of them are obese and having issues. And I've got a young man, 20s, who's on dialysis due to, you know, a, 
I think it's polycystic kidney sort of issue. And he, of course, wants to get a kidney, having a heck of a time losing and sticking with a program. Because if any of you guys know much about Samoan culture, they really they like to feast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> to show up do. on the, yeah, the surgical table in, in a malnourished state, if they're doing something extreme, that's not yeah. helpful either as far as recovery. So that's how, do true. You, how do you advocate for those patients that are doing everything that they can just to get to this number so they can have the surgery, but it's not working or to say that they are healthy enough to move forward with surgery despite a BMI of 41? Well, there are definitely times, especially with the, I've had more luck with the orthopedist because that's just an individual doc. And I've had a number of my elderly patients who've lost weight. I just need to show the surgeon that they're making that effort. They're trying to follow plant, uh, you know, an approach. And I had a lady who has an eating disorder. She's got binge eating disorder. And I explained that to the orthopedist. She had severe hip problems. She's like 60s and we've been managing her binge eating disorder. We've been managing her diet, keeping her weight basically stable. Haven't really lost significant weight. I think her BMI is low 40s, you know, something like that. Maybe it is around 41, something like that. And we were able to lose a little bit of weight. And I just talked to the orthopedist who's luckily a friend of mine and and just told him, we're not going to lose more weight. (laughs) And the poor lady has been on crutches for a year now we're not helping her. We're making her worse by, you know, not fixing these hips. And he yeah. agreed and, and went okay. forward. Good. Um, most of them are human. Uh, they'll listen to you, okay. uh, but that's what they need is somebody who says, I've been working with her for a long time. You need to understand all that's going on here. Yeah. And they often don't know. Yeah. I <laughs> feel like we could just, there's, there's so many areas that I'd love to go into with you and talk to you all day. I'm going to have Abby do her wrap up question. And it's a little, I mean, take your time with it. It's, we're really trying to speak to the things that you know that you've learned. And so, Abby, why don't you ask Dr. Hooper that wrap up question? Yeah. And I guess maybe we need to maybe rephrase it a, a bit. Do you think that? So, typically, what we ask Dr. Hooper is, what do you wish you would have known? before entering the field of eating disorders that you do know now. But I I mean, would you want to rephrase it a bit? It's for people coming into the field of eating disorders. You came into it knowing that you needed to know more. Right. What do you wish people, maybe even in your area, could know about eating disorders? Well, I wish that I would like, it's not even so much a wish, I just see it as something that we're working on, to make the general medical population a little bit more familiar with what to look for and how to you know, recognize eating disorders and how to you know, recognize red flags when they are, you know, somebody, I was reading an article for my mentor program it meets today. And we read an article about terminal anorexia. And one of the patients who was kind of presenting her case, or whoever was presenting the case on this patient, was talking about the patient's issues. And some point early in her years, 
she had lost a lot of weight in college by doing anorexic sort of behaviors and ultimately had lost a bunch of weight, comes back from college and just got all this praise for losing weight and looking good. And that just cemented it for her. She was yeah. bought and sold. And, and mm -hmm. many years later, she's describing how she's now terminal anorexia and so on. But the bottom line is we need to recognize that just losing weight may not be a good thing. There's a lot of societal things that we need to, as medical people, be a little bit quicker to recognize as potentially problematic. Because I think we're often the quickest to say, oh, good for you. Look what you've that. done. Yeah. And, and how you said the, the mental health and the physical health together is so important. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hooper, for joining us today. Sure, sure. It was very, I enjoyed it. Refreshing. Anytime you want to talk, we can certainly arrange something. Finish this long conversation that we could have for days. Well, yeah, exactly. I just see that my field of obesity medicine, lifestyle medicine is kind of an, it's a, in its infancy as far as being accepted as a, as a field that is being reimbursed. We definitely are making headway with that and that sort of thing. But it's insurance companies are coming around to the fact that we try and prevent rather than treat after the fact, which is the whole point of, of what we do. And the hope is that that will only continue to grow. As it does, oh, maybe we'll make some progress. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.